Let's go to uh, Acts chapter number 18. Acts chapter 18. <clears throat> Last week we were in Acts chapter 17 about the, the uh, accounts of, uh, in, of Paul in the book of, I'm sorry, in the city of Athens. And the week before that we were in Thessalonica and in Berea. And so this is going to be one of the last places that uh, Paul goes. This is the place of Corinth. This is the city of Corinth. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 18 and read verse one, verses 1 through 11. The Bible says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded uh, all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the, night, in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, thank you for the opportunity once again to meet together as the church of God. I pray, Lord, that you would even as you did with Lydia, so with your people here this morning, that you would give us all openness of heart and a desire, Lord, to do your will, that we would desire to know what your will is and desire to actually put it in practice. Lord, I pray that these things, I would say all of the things that are written in your word here in the right spirit, uh, in the right way to help your people, to strengthen uh, our church's mission and what you have given us to do. And Lord, I pray that you would bless our time together, that the Spirit of God would be the teacher, that the Word of God would be the subject, and Lord, that we would truly be students of what it says. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the gospel uh, by which we have been saved and forgiven because you died in our place on the cross. Thank you for that. Thank you for the grace of God as evidenced in the lives of each and every person here. Lord, please continue to do a work of grace in each and every person here, including in myself. Lord, that we might walk with you more closely and more freely do your will without any kind of hindrance or encumbrance of this, this flesh and this nature that so often uh, drags us down. So Lord, we ask for your help and your grace as we look in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Acts 18, verse number 1, Corinth. Corinth was a city, you might call it the Las Vegas of Achaia, of Greece. So this was uh, further down south from Athens uh, on the coast uh, of, uh, of Greece. And uh, it, was a, it was a very, very wicked city. And that actually comes out because you see it in, in the book of 1 Corinthians. You see all kind of immorality, questions about marriage and who can be married and who can't be married and uh, people that have been divorced and all, all kinds of confusing situations in 1 Corinthians. You even had one who, is, who, had, who had taken his father's wife. It's just debauchery and wickedness and confusion. And it seems that after this church was established, that wickedness of that city seemed to kind of trickle in to the church, like these places on this roof that we've had fixed recently. That rain comes down and, and it, uh, it, it seeps through and creates stains on these tiles. And that's the way sin does. And it apparently did that with this church. That sin kind of rained down on it and it eventually it infiltrated the church itself. And so that's why Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians to correct some of those moral problems. And that, that wasn't all. There was all kind of other things. Christians going to law against Christians and, and all kind of other issues there. And, and the Lord had to deal with it. And so He did. But this is all the beginning. When Paul came to Corinth, notice in verse 2, the Bible says, He came and immediately, as far as we know, immediately He met uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife couple they are Jews. Now it says Aquila was born in Pontus. Now if you think of, if we, in our study as we've gone through Acts, we've spent a lot of time in the country of what is now Turkey, right? And in the northern part of Turkey on the edge of the Black Sea was a, a section of the Roman Empire, a, a, an area or a, a territory called Pontus. It was right on the Black Sea. So really, uh, Aquila was actually very similar to Paul because Paul was born in Tarsus, which is on the southern part of Turkey. And uh, Aquila was born on the northern part of Turkey, but they were both Jews that were born among the Gentiles. So there's a certain similarity there. And uh, they had lived, he and Priscilla had lived in Italy. And it says in verse number two that they had left Italy and had just arrived in, uh, in Corinth there because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. Now, Claudius was the emperor of Rome. And this is actually recorded in history. I, I know I don't want to bore you too much with, with historical notes, but when you're reading the, the biblical narratives and you can find where it overlaps with other sources and archaeology and stuff is actually very interesting, at least to me. I hope it is to you as well. But this, this uh, com command for the Jews to leave Rome was recorded by a man named uh, Suetonius in a, in a book called The Lives of the Caesars. And in the, in the section called The Life of Claudius, chapter 25, verse 4, he says this, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. Which is interesting because Crestus, by just changing one letter, it becomes Christus, which is the Latin word for Christ. And so most people think that this is actually a reference to Christ. Notice what it says. The Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christ. And so he commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, what's interesting is in this case, just like if you've been in our study in Acts, 
Who, what group of people is always causing problems to Paul? Everywhere he goes, what group is giving him the most trouble? It's the Jews. There are a couple of times, kind of fringe examples, where, the, where some of the Greeks were giving him trouble, but generally it was the Jews. Most of the time, out of envy and out of jealousy. Look at a couple of examples, even in the previous chapter, chapter 17. Look at verse 5. The Bible says this, But the Jews which believed not moved with envy. Notice, I want you to note what they're doing. Took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And then if you look at the same chapter, verse 13, it says this, But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also, and notice the last phrase, and stirred up the people. Now, if you've ever been, how many of you have been to like a developing country or a country that is, that is not so law and order-centered order as we purport to be. Mary Lynn is sheepishly raising her hand. What you'll note, I don't know if any of you are aware of this. I know Brother Stewart is aware of it. Most of the time, in many countries, uh, there's a, there are exceptions. China, you know, and you know, com, communist, strong communist countries like that. But a lot of times, they don't really care what you do as long as you don't create a problem, Right? If you can kind of fly under the radar, and that's what Elise is trying to do, in, you know, where she's at. If you try to fly under the radar and you don't create a disturbance, a lot of times they'll just kind of turn a blind eye to it, even if it's not exactly lawful, right? And this is exactly what's happening here in, in Rome. But the problem is this, is Paul goes somewhere and Paul's just, he's minding his own business. I mean, you're, you, do, you do not see Paul causing disturbances. What you see is the Jews chasing Paul, causing disturbances. And they, they're, not, they're not content to just, just oppose him like we see here. It says here, they, uh, they oppose themselves, which just simply means they set themselves in opposition to Paul. It's not just that. Wherever they went to oppose Paul, they always tried to get a crowd. There's the problem. Because when you have these Roman officials and you have a riot, now the officials are drug into it. Now they're going to have to go through and write the reports and report to the people up the chain. And they're going to have to, you know, explain why there was a big ruckus and who did it and what was the cause. And all. You've embarrassed them, right? And so that's exactly what the Jews did to Paul. They caused a huge ruckus everywhere he went for the express purpose of turning people against him, even though he was innocent, even though he didn't do anything, he himself was a Roman citizen, in order to get the officials, to kind of sick the officials on him. This, this happened over and over and over. And what's interesting is where this overlaps with what I just read from uh, Suetonius here is that it says the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of, of Christus. So Paul goes into a city and starts pre preaching about Jesus. The Jews attack him. And what does it appear to be? It appears to be an internal Jewish issue. And in fact, if you look at verses 12 through 17, uh, we'll just look at a few of those. Verse 12, this is in Corinth now. And when Galileo was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. 
See, the, he had just taken this, this position, right? He's the, the, the proconsul, they called it, of, this, of Achaia, the province of Achaia. So he's a import, very important person. Verse 13 says, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If this were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and of names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying, look, this sounds like an issue with you Jewish people. All right, so you Jews hate Paul's a Jew, and you Jews hate this guy because this guy says some guy named, named Christ died in Judea and then rose again, and you guys say he didn't, and now you're trying to kill him. That sounds like a Jewish problem. I ain't going to have anything to do with that. That's basically what's going on. They were constantly persecuting him. And so when we read this, we see that they had left Rome, according to the, the, the documents, likely because of this very problem. Aquila and Priscilla had to leave because they just said, you know what, Claudia said, you know what, you Jews, whatever issues you're having, because remember the gospel did, had, gone, had gone to Rome by another means. Paul is not the one that took the gospel to Rome. And so they say, you know what, just get out of here. Leave, Jews, all of you, Christian, non-Christian, leave, all of you. And so here you have a Jewish Christian couple who just arrived in Corinth. That's kind of the context of this. And in verse 3, uh, well, before I get there, I, I want to remind us of something. What, every time you see uh, Priscilla and Aquila, either one of them, you always see the other in the Bible. Romans 16, 13 says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 says, The churches of Asia salute you, and Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. 2 Timothy 4, 19, Salute Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. You know what made me think of when I thought about Priscilla and Aquila? Every time you see them, they're together. They have a church in their house, together. They're mentioned in Scripture, together. Later, we're going to see they meet Apollos, and they give him instruction, together. I thought, how powerful would it be if that was the testimony of Christian families in, in this church and in all churches where it's, not, where it's not the husband is following the Lord and the wife is trailing behind in the situation like Lot and his wife. And it's not that the wife is trying to follow the Lord, but the husband is, is, is falling behind and is really not seeking God. Or perhaps, they're, you know, perhaps people have gotten saved and their husband wasn't saved or their wife wasn't saved. And that's something you can't do anything about. You're just glad you're saved and you try to win them and you do your best. But in the case where you have two believers, should not two believers be serving together? Should not two believers? Should if you're saved and you have a you have a you're you're born again and you have a born again spouse, should you not be partners together, equally yoked? Is that not what the Bible refers to this kind of relationship? A yoke where you are serving God together, equally doing the will of God in one accord, that should be what it looks like. This is the ideal. This is what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be one of us is here and one of us isn't. One of us is, is walking with God and one of us isn't. One of us is trying to teach the kids right and one of us isn't. It's not supposed to be like that. And we are far better together 
when we're both serving God. And listen, that should be the case here. And if it's not, for whatever reason, we should make it a we should make it a serious matter of prayer because this is what the Lord wants. He wants us to serve God. If you're married, he wants you to serve God together as a partner with your spouse. Please don't neglect those relationships. Please don't neglect those relationships. You know, sometimes husband and wife independently live for God, but they neglect the relationship between them. That happens sometimes. And even if, you know, husband and wife are both trying to walk with the Lord, yet between them it's out of order. You can't serve God, you can't live for God, you can't go forward together with God if that is out of order. It is absolutely going to handicap you. And it's going to handicap what we see here, which is both of them living for God together, always together. Where where you see one, you see the other. You know who I thought of when I read this? And, you know, where you see one, you see the other. You know who I thought of? I thought of the Thomases. Literally everywhere. Brother Vernon and Sister Betty go, you see one, you see the other. Today, it's ironic that today... I'm talking about this right now, and one, only one of them has, is here, but, but he already went back home to be with, be with Betty. But literally everywhere, I mean, if they're cutting grass, if they're cutting wood, if they're visiting, it's always one you see the other, serving the Lord together. That is right. That is the way it should be. And you know what? If something is hindering that, that thing, if, if it's hindering that relationship, bring that thing into the middle of your life and say, Lord, I, I'm not avoiding this anymore. I'm going to deal with this issue, whatever it is, so that we can be right with you together. Because remember, even among Christians, say nothing of husband and wife, but even among Christians, you cannot, I cannot properly be right with God if I'm not right with my brother or my sister. So much more my spouse. It's not possible unless I have done everything in my power to get that relationship right. And there are times when that's not enough. The other party is not involved. But if you're going, if we are going to have families where Aquilas and Priscilla's are serving God, it's going to require both effort by Aquilas and Priscilla's. It's going to require them both walking with God and then being together, walking with each other at the same time. Verse 3. And because he was of the same craft, he, and he abode with them and wrought. We've seen this before, that Paul was willing to work. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 2, the Bible says he labored night and day, which is, uh, which is fitting with our Sunday school lesson. Because Paul, as we study in Sunday school, labor, Paul labored uh, to support himself. And we're about to have a mission conference. And, you know, you think, well, why can't the missionaries just support themselves? Well, in a lot of places in the modern era, you, you just can't. You're not allowed. Like, you go there with a certain kind of visa, and you get in trouble if you try to work. And so we have a way to support. But even, but even Paul, even though he could work, you know what you find? The churches are still sending him money. In fact, when he was in Corinth, that's when they, the, the church in Philippi sent him money. And so... Uh, they're supporting him and he is working whatever must be done to get the job done. Now look at verse 6. This is where I want to go with this. Verse 6 says, And when they opposed themselves, the Jews now, and blasphemed, he shook his raiment 
and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. Now, for all the talk about how we force God on people, and we force people to hear the gospel, you know, it's funny, you know, not too many decades ago, hearing something was not considered something done by force. Because it was understood that if you heard something you didn't like, you could just walk away, right? Or if you heard something on the radio you didn't like, you could just turn it off, right? You still can, right? I mean, it hasn't all of a sudden become a matter of force to tell somebody about, about the Lord. But yet, that's how it's described, right? As concerning the gospel, there is no force. We don't force any, anything on anybody. We tell them plainly. We try to share the gospel with them. We try to warn them. We try to be kind but direct, right? When we, when we talk to people, that's our goal. But we're not forcing anything upon anyone. And some people think that because we don't actually affirm and confirm what they already believe, that somehow we're forcing certain things on them. But when Paul, these people set themselves in opposition and blaspheme, what did Paul do? He says, I'm going to get the authorities after you. No, no, no. No, he didn't do that. You see, we lay the claims of Christ before people, present them with the claims of Christ and the truth, and we commend it to every man's conscience for their response. You know, that relieves a lot of pressure. It's not about checking boxes. It's not about counting heads, about how many people are saved and that kind of thing. And you know, I, and I, I'll be the first one to say, I want to see people get saved. I've been praying for that uh, for a long time now, that the Lord would begin to save people through our church's ministry. Not just coming down the aisle, you know, as they say. Not just that, but through each one of you giving the gospel to people. Each one of you sharing the gospel and somebody's heart being open and them getting saved and seeing that whole process play out. Someone coming to Christ, showing up with you and you, they, them coming and professing their confession before all of us that they have trusted in Christ and then following the Lord in baptism and beginning to follow uh, the Lord as a part of our church. Listen, that's what I want to see. I'm just trying to be transparent with you. And I would like you to pray with me about that, to see the Lord do that among us. But you know what? If that's going to happen, we're going to have to put some effort forth. Each one of us. Each one of us is going to have to do that and to be involved in this. Because verse 6, notice what it says. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. That's an interesting thing to say. Now, if you would, hold your place here. Quickly go back to Genesis chapter 9. I want to show you kind of the origin of this terminology, one's blood being mentioned in this way. Genesis 9, verse number 5. After Noah leaves the ark, God gives him some commands. So this goes way back. 
It deals with what life is and the value and esteem that God puts upon life. Verse number five of Genesis nine says, and surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of a man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. What, what is he talking about? The hand of a beast, hand of a man. What is he talking about? Read the next verse. Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. So here's what it's saying in essence. The blood represents the life of the man. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And so when that blood is shed as a result of murder, or even as an animal, this is what it's saying, even if an animal sheds a man's blood, causes his death, the blood of that person is then required to be paid by the blood of the person that is guilty. And only blood is sufficient to pay for blood. Because listen, the life is precious. How much money can you pay to, to, to equal the life of a person whose life you have taken? There's no amount of money. So the Lord says, this is a biblical principle. The Lord says, all right, you shed his blood and took his life, so your life must be taken. And that is the only payment that equals the crime. This is a biblical principle. Okay, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. Now look at Exodus chapter, or I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 20. To the, as they say, the white part of the Bible, the white pages of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 20, although it shouldn't be that white because we were here on Wednesday night as well. Leviticus chapter 20 in verse number 11. I could pick a number of verses to, to illustrate this, but I, I'll just read just one. Leviticus 20, verse 11 says this, And the man that lieth with his father's wife hath uncovered his father's nakedness. That's, what, that's actually what happened in, in, in Corinth. In the church of Corinth, this thing that God says is a death penalty offense. It happened in the church. That's crazy. That's crazy. And the man that lieth with his father's wife hath uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Now look, look at the last phrase. Their blood shall be upon them. What does that mean? Well, it simply means this. The guilt that they have incurred from their sin is their own fault. Right? That's what it means. It means there is no other party that is guilty for what is happening when these people are actually put to death. Under the law, this was a, this was a capital offense. So when that, when that was carried out and someone, uh, some agent of the government, carried out the, the required sentence for this crime, that person was not guilty of anything. That person was, was innocent. The guilt fell squarely upon the head of the person who committed the crime. All right, is everybody, everybody with me on that? Because this, this relates directly to Acts chapter 18. Now go back to Acts chapter 18 if you would, and let's read verse 6 again. 
says this, And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. Same words. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is simply saying, the Jews have set at every place he has gone. Now, I know Paul is not carrying bitterness from Thessalonica and from Berea and from Lystra and from Derby and from Antioch and Pisidia and all these other places where at every turn he was persecuted by the Jews. But he is saying to these Corinthian Jews, he's saying, I have given you the gospel. I have explained the truth. I have showed you and reasoned from the scripture and you have opposed and you have blasphemed the name of Christ, over and over and over, the guilt of that decision and those actions rests solely upon you at this point. But do you know, well, let, let me make this point first. It says, your blood will be upon, be upon your own heads. You know, what that, you know what that tells us? That and I'm speaking, I'm speaking metaphorically here because that's what Paul is speaking. No blood, actual literal red blood is shed. He's using a figure of speech, right? But using this figure of speech, this tells us that those that reject Christ, that turn the gospel away, will absolutely bleed figuratively, spiritually. In other words, they will be judged. The Bible says that it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. In Acts 17, we read just the page over. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. That's Jesus Christ. So those that reject Christ, that's, that's what Paul is saying. Your blood is on you. You will be judged by the Lord for your rejection of the gospel. You will not get a pass. He will, just like those that committed murder were judged, just like those who committed these sins I read in Leviticus were judged and their blood fell upon them. So, spiritually speaking, these Jews would bear the guilt of rejecting the one who came to save them. And so it is true in our day. Every single person will be judged for the iniquity of rejecting Christ. You know what? No, that's not part of the gospel, but that is a, that is a, a definitely something that is adjacent to the gospel that people need to be reminded of. There is judgment, and it does not all end well for people. The Bible says that all men that have died, will, that, that have gone into hell, and that have, that have died without Christ will one day be resurrected, and they will stand at the great, the large, that's what that means, White throne of God. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. It says, And they will be judged, every man according to his works, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That Listen, that's not, that's not a figure of speech. That's not, a, that's not just a fancy imagery or an allegory of some kind. That is literal torment. God will judge sin and he will judge sinners. Blood, if you, we could say it like this, blood will be shed. But the question I have for us today is do we care? Do, and I'm not, Lord knows, 
And I mean that literally. I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to me as much as I'm talking to you. Do I care? Do I believe that people will be judged? Look at, um, look at Ezekiel 33 real quick. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1. The Bible says this, Ezekiel 33, verse 1, Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak unto the children of thy people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of, that, of the land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchman, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, and he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. We've heard that before. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning, his blood shall be upon him. But he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. Now, let me just give you a context of this. We don't have watchmen, right? The watchmen that we have are people that watch computer screens somewhere in the Pentagon or some missile silo somewhere. <laughs> we don't have what, but in the, in, in the biblical era where they had city walls, people were appointed who had obviously good eyesight to, to, to stay upon the city walls in shifts and to look over the horizon and to watch for enemies coming. So this, and, and when an enemy would come, he would alert the people so the people could prepare themselves and defend the city. Now, this is what a watchman does. A watchman watches. Now, what we've read so far in verses 1 through 6 is a literal reference to a watchman, but what, what, he is here, what we see here is a parable. So the Lord is talking to Ezekiel and the Lord is saying, this is the way it works with a watchman. If the watchman is on, the, is the people put a watchman and he, he watches for the enemy and the enemy comes, he blows the trumpet and they're aware, but they do nothing, they are guilty. If, if the enemy comes and destroys them and kills them, it's their own fault, not the watchman's fault. If, however, the watchman sees the enemy coming but does not warn them, the watchman is now culpable. Because he, having the opportunity to warn them, failed to do so for some reason. He is therefore guilty. In fact, he is guilty of their blood. I mean, not just a little guilty, but guilty in the same way that a murderer is guilty. Now, that's what he's talking about in actual fact in verses 1 through 6. Now, look at verse 7 of Exodus 33. Because in verse 7, the Lord, speaking, applies this parable and interprets it to Ezekiel specifically. So thou, O son of man... I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. 
not, now not, not to look for enemies. He says, therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Listen, going back to Genesis chapter 9, requiring, listen, the Lord is saying to Ezekiel, I will require their blood, the blood of the wicked man who is judged by God. I will require that. That's the same punishment that a murderer got in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 9. Nevertheless, verse 9, if thou warn the wicked of his way and to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Notice a few things that we see in this very quickly and we'll be finished. Indeed, there is a sword. That's what I've already said. In verse number 2, he mentions a sword coming upon the land and there is a judgment. The Bible says, as I said a minute ago, the Bible says that the wrath of God abides on everyone without Christ. That's an unpleasant thought. I don't enjoy saying that, but it's true. It's true. And in verse 3, the Bible says uh, of, of Ezekiel 33 in the parable, if he see the sword come, you and I know that the wrath of God abides on people. You and I know that even though people live their life day in, day out, Monday to Friday, and they just, they just go on about their daily life, you know that judgment is coming. You know, Jonathan Edwards in, the, in his, his uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he described a sinner as dangling by a spider's thread over hell. There is actual danger. There is actual danger to meet God without a Savior, the Savior. There is actual danger. Do you, do I believe that? Not just in here, but do we believe it in our heart? And does that belief rise to the point that we're willing to actually warn a person? Colossians 1.28, look at verse 3 here. It says this, If when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people. Listen to this verse. Colossians 1.28, whom we preach, talking about Christ, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. You know, to warn is not always negative. Of course, the context is negative, but a warning can be a very positive and good thing when someone's in actual danger, is it not? It's not just, it's not, listen, when you warn somebody that they're, they're on, the, on the cusp of judgment, that if they die without Christ, they're going to go to hell and they'll be judged and sent to the lake of fire. You're not wish. I sure hope you're not wishing that upon them. But warning someone of imminent danger is not, is not harmful. It's good regardless of how it's taken. It's an act of mercy, just as when the watchman warns when he's on the wall. It is to give a person timely notice of impending danger or misfortune. We warn people not just talking by talking about hell, but by also talking to them about the Savior. For what good is a warning? Oh, 
You, if you die without forgiveness of your sin, you'll go to hell, but you provide no Savior. That's not much of a warning, I would say. The message includes both judgment and salvation at once. But then in verse 4 and 5, he says, there'll be some that hear the sound of the trumpet, but do not heed it. You know what? That's not our business. We just tell them the truth the best we can, in the most convincing and persuasive way that we can. But the way they respond is on them. But many of you know people, and I know people, that even though we've tried to tell them about the Lord, they have rejected the Lord so far. Do we not have compassion on them nonetheless? We should. Verse 5 says, His blood shall be upon him. A man who rejects Christ is guilty himself. But let, listen, but let not any of our loved ones, our friends, our family, be judged by the Lord righteously, having never been warned. Verse 5 talks about he will deliver his soul Christ is the Savior. Verse 6, But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned. Listen, where is our compassion? Where is our compassion to not tell people, to not, listen, not be involved in the work of getting the gospel to people? Where is our compassion? Do we not believe the Bible? And you know what, what I'm talking about? Is I'm not just referring to our church's evangelism ministry, whether it be at the care home in downtown Greenville, knocking doors or going on a mission trip or whatever. That includes that, both that as well as the personal witnesses because you have people in your sphere that nobody in this room can touch but you. And the truth is that the reality, the sobering reality, to be honest with you, to me, is that we are responsible to tell them. We are the warners. We are the, the watchmen. So when it says in verse 8, His blood will I require at thine hand, we will have to give an account for those in our circle, in our sphere, that we didn't bother to tell. We didn't bother to try even. And I know, listen, I feel, I feel the pain as much as you do. I don't know what to say. The Lord in heaven knows that I have said that to him many times. Lord, I don't know what to say. I've tried so many times. I don't know what else to say. But we've got to try. We've got to at least try. I mean, their soul's in the balance. Yeah, they might reject it. But they, they got to hear. Back in our text, very quickly before he closes, in Acts 18, Paul says, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. Why is Paul clean? Because he discharged his duty regarding their blood. He warned them 
with all His power. Have you and have I done our duty to give people warning? And I know that's not a pleasant, necessarily always a pleasant thing. But the Lord, we, we, didn't, we didn't get put here in this place voluntarily. The Lord set us, just like with Ezekiel, set him as a watchman. The Lord did that. Not Ezekiel, he didn't volunteer. I want to be a watchman for the house of Israel. No, the Lord put, and the Lord put us as the gospel ministers, as the witnesses in this world. But do you know the primary reason that we fail to warn people? It's in verse 9. Paul felt it just as much as we do. The Lord appeared to Paul in a vision and said, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. You see that? Paul was afraid. All the persecution he endured, the stripes on his back, he didn't enjoy it in Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and Pisidia. He didn't enjoy it. He said in Acts 20 verse 23, he said, Say that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that, the, that bonds and afflictions abide me. He knew that that, that was going to follow him around. He needed strengthening because he was fearful. And you know, fear is one of the major causes of our lack of fulfilling our duty as watchmen. But the thing is, listen, the thing is not, is not waiting to have no fear. I'm going to be transparent with you. Every single week that we go on visitation and knock doors, without exception, there is not one exception, I'm afraid. Every single week, every week we go out and something in me kind of recoils. You might not be that way, but it's that way with me. Every week. We go downtown Greenville on Saturday. There's a part of me that does not want to go. I'm afraid. Just being honest. But see, we, Paul was the same way. <laughs> he was the same way. It's not about waiting till you have no fear, because that's not going to happen. It's about giving the gospel despite the fear. It's about our love for the Lord and our regard for His commandments and His duty that He's given to us and our compassion for those who are in literal danger rising above the fear and drowning the fear. It means giving the gospel to people through fear, not fearlessly. You know, if we, if we want to see, and I hope you agree, want to see people come to the Lord and faith and trust and believe on Him and come to our church, not to fill the church, but as a, a matter of our church growing and increasing in the, in the right way, people getting baptized, we have a duty to warn people. You know what? And Paul said, I'm clean. You know, Paul wasn't clean for Greenville, South Carolina. He wasn't clean because this wasn't his area of responsibility, but it is the area of responsibility for Choice Hills Baptist Church. 
and your individual sphere, these little bubbles that uh, around each one of you, that is the area of responsibility for each one of us. So are we fulfilling our duty to warn people? That's the question. Let's pray together.